to right up the end of the New Testament, just before Revelation. If I could have my title slide, please. Grateful for the young people that help out with all the sound and vision. I thought our young people did an outstanding job this morning. Amen. Some of the thoughts that our young speakers brought out demonstrated some very serious time thinking about things and meditating on the things that God was laying on their hearts. And I was very impressed with what they did today. Amen. Proud of our young people. Bless the Lord. The book of Jude is one that contains warnings for the church. It's an incredibly brief book. My, my pastor, Brother Jackson, used to describe it as a dirty little book because it's full of unpleasant things. <laughs> it's an unusual way to describe Scripture, but he had an understanding of the Word of God that was such I wasn't going to challenge his description. Very brief epistle, but a very sobering epistle. And in chapter 1 and verse 3, we'll pick out a few bits and pieces, but in chapter 1 and verse 3, Jude, who was technically speaking the half-brother of the Lord, said, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. Jude said that he recognized there, were, there was an urgency in the tone in which he writes that it was important that he wrote to the church about the common salvation. That expression doesn't mean that it was without value, but he was saying what is common amongst us as people of faith. It was the common salvation. It was the faith and the salvation that they shared in. And he said that it, he felt a responsibility to exhort them that they should earnestly contend for the faith. This faith, he said, was once delivered to the saints. Or in other words, it was delivered once and for all. There's no updates coming. There's no revisions. There's no adapting for present society's preferences. There is only one faith that has been delivered to us. We are to contend for that. We are to defend it. The, the verse urges us to passionately defend and uphold what we believe because it's what the apostles believe. And uh, it is in no way a passive statement of let's just get along with everybody and as long as we believe in God, let's, let's just go along and get along. And Scripture does teach us not to be contentious. And what that means is that we should not go out of our way to look for trouble or to cause trouble or to cause strife. You know, there are just some people, wherever they go, trouble seems to find them. They should not be God's people. Amen. So that's not what it's talking about. But for the gospel, for the faith that the Lord considered important enough that he manifests himself in flesh and died to provide for us, we are to stand for that. We are to contend for that. We are to defend it. We are to preserve it. We are not to dilute it. We are not given the liberty of changing it regardless of the opinions and popularity of society around about us. Why does Jude feel this urgency? Why does he feel this need to warn us and to challenge us that we should stand strong in what's been delivered unto us? The answer is found in the next verse, in verse 4, where he said, there are certain men, you can interpret that as people, it's not gender-based, but there are certain men 
crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation. Ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. These are people, Jude says, that have crept in. That doesn't mean that they got down and crawled on the floor and managed to come in while we weren't looking. But it means that they've come in subtly. Or even they may have changed after they've already been in the church. Jude said that this was predicted from long ago. That there would be people like this that would pervert the gospel, that would use the grace of God as a license to sin, as an excuse to be immoral, and would go as far as to deny the Lord himself or to dismiss his majesty and his holiness and who he was. And Jude then turns, and in the next few verses, which we won't read for the sake of time, Jude reminds the readers, he reminds his audience of the historical consequences that happens when people turn away from God. He refers to, firstly, those Israelites in the wilderness, and Brother Jonathan mentioned them this morning, of how they, they turned from God, they didn't have faith in God, and they were destroyed in the wilderness. Jude then mentions the angels who left their first estate, who are now in darkness until the day of judgment. He speaks about Sodom and Gomorrah, whose wickedness was so vile and so offensive to God that God destroyed them. It reached a point, it, it, it makes me wonder how bad Sodom and Gomorrah were and how bad the pre-flood world was if it was worse than the world that we're living in today. Or we just, because of God's timing and His mercy, He hasn't acted yet, but I promise you, He will act. These examples are given to us to remind the church of how God felt about those people and their actions, of how he felt about Sodom and Gomorrah and those angels that, that abandoned their created purpose and the Israelites that refused to trust him in the wilderness. And then Jude specifically mentions three characters from the Old Testament to use as a warning for us. In verse 11 through to 13, he says, Woe unto them! For they have gone in the way of Cain. They have run greedily after the error of Balaam for reward and perished in the gainsaying of Korah. Korah here is spelled C-O-R-E in the Old Testament. It's K-O-R-A-H. And then he says, These are spots in your feasts of charity when they feast with you, feeding themselves without fear. Clouds they are without water, carried about of winds, trees whose fruit withers without fruit, twice dead, I'm not sure how you're twice dead, but plucked up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, foaming out their own shame, wandering stars to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. That's a pretty scary passage of scripture right there. Jude compares those that he is warning the church about in his present day, those that crept in unawares, and because it is the inspired word of God, he is also warning us, he's comparing those people to Cain, to Balaam, and to Korah. And his description, when he describes these people and he refers to their traits and their characteristics, it's, it's graphic. It's quite brutal, in fact. He's definitely not very politically correct because he says that when you gather together 
in the love of God. He said, these people are stains. They are unwanted blemishes. How would you like that to be how you were known in the family of God? Oh, here comes that unwanted blemish. I don't think that's a body part in the body of Christ. But he describes them as stains or unwanted blemishes. He said they will go as far as to take the goodness of God in the church with no fear, no respect, and no reverence. The clouds without water, which is really a fancy word for being hypocrites. They look like something, but there's nothing on the inside. Trees with withered fruit or no fruit, twice dead, plucked up by the roots. It almost seems to imply that they were once grounded and alive, but are no longer alive. Raging waves, lots of commotion, lots of froth, but no substance. I get the impression that Jude felt fairly strongly about this particular subject. But as the Spirit of God moved on him, there was he wasn't smiling when he wrote this epistle. There was a, a, a very serious expression on his face. There was a strong tone in what he was saying. And for just the next few minutes, I want to consider the way of Cain, the error of Balaam, and the gainsaying of Korah, that we might better understand what that's talking about, and in doing so, endeavor to keep those things out of our lives. Because if they're written to us as a warning, it means that we all have the potential to be affected by them. None of us think we do because we, we, we're not that foolish. But if it's in the scripture, it's worth listening to. Cain, we know, was the firstborn son of Adam and Eve. And in fact, Cain was the first person ever born. Adam and Eve weren't born. Cain was the first person that was ever born of a woman. He was the till, a tiller of the ground, or we would say he was a farmer. And many of you know the account in Genesis where at a certain time, both he and his younger brother Abel brought sacrifices. No doubt a practice that they had observed and learned from the example of their parents, Adam and Eve. And Cain, as was his trade, he brought a sacrifice of vegetables. Abel was a shepherd. He brought a lamb from his flock and he offered that unto the Lord. And the Bible tells us that Cain's sacrifice was rejected by the Lord. In Genesis 4, verses 3 to 5, it says, And in the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. And Abel he also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering. But unto Cain and to his offering he had not respect. And Cain was very wroth. He was very angry, very upset. His feelings were very hurt. And his countenance fell. His whole expression, his outlook changed. I believe we, it's not a stretch to suggest that he became offended and even bitter. Cain was unrighteous, both in his sacrifice, he chose the wrong kind of sacrifice, but also in the desire and the intent of his heart. God did not accept him or what he offered. He was very displeased by this, and if not more so, it was salt in his wound that his brother was accepted and blessed. And he was rejected. And the Bible says that his works were evil. Abel's sacrifice itself pleased the Lord. But more than that, Abel's sacrifice was a witness that he was righteous. His heart, his attitude, the things that God could see testified that Abel was righteous. In First John Chapter 3 and verse 11, the Apostle John wrote and said, For this is the message 
that you have heard from the beginning that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of that wicked one and slew his brother. And wherefore slew he him? Or why did he kill him? Because his own works were evil and his brothers were righteous. Hebrews 11 and 4 says, By faith Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and by it he being dead yet speaketh. It's always struck me that the first murder that is recorded in the word of God began with corrupt worship. It began with a bad heart in what was supposed to be an approach to God. It's very important when we come before him, when we come into his house. We're not talking about being flawless or perfect, but it's very important that we allow him to examine our hearts. That when we come, we say, Lord, let my heart be right. When I bring my offering, that's why Jesus said, if you come with your gift and you know your brother's got order, you've got order, he said, leave that there and go and fix that first. Then come and offer it. Because if things are wrong in here, then what happens out here is of little value. And then when we are rejected and we, we don't feel the Lord respond to us, I'm not just talking about our emotions, but in our relationship with Him, then we are very subject to becoming bitter and twisted like Cain did. And that can cost others a lot as well. Amen. You see, the Lord spoke to Cain in an attempt to correct him, to get him back on track. But he was not interested. In fact, when he murdered his brother, he was still only concerned for himself. He said, my punishment is greater than I can bear. I'm thinking, Lord, why don't you just squash him like a bug right then? But he was still only concerned for his own well-being. In Genesis 4 and 16, the first part of that verse says, and Cain went out from the presence of the Lord. That wasn't a physical transition. That wasn't a relocation. It wasn't that God was here, but he was not here. But Cain's status in his relationship with God changed so that because his heart was hard and he would not repent and he would not take God's... The Lord said, if you do right, you'll be accepted. Because he would not listen, he relationship-wise went out from the presence of the Lord. He became distant and further away from God. And this is not an exhaustive definition, but the way of Cain could be described as being able to say, I would rather kill my brother and leave those that gave birth to me than have to submit and bring my sacrifice God's way. The way of Cain is a progressive journey away from God, ignoring the opportunities to be restored. Amen. Balaam. If you know the story of Balaam, you know it's found in I think it begins or thereabouts in Numbers chapter 22 and it goes over quite a few chapters so we won't read too much of that. But the background is that there was an ungodly king, a man by the name of Balak, or Balak, B-A-L-A-K, king of Moab, who was concerned about Israel. He was concerned about their military power, about how they could come and, and, and overwhelm him and his whatever forces he had, he had. And so in his effort to try to resist them, he sends for a man by the name of Balaam. Balaam is a prophet of some kind. Balaam obviously had a reputation, otherwise why would he be sent for? He had some kind of connection with God. We, we really don't know much of his backstory, but he was somebody that was able to 
talked to God. He had some kind of prophetic ministry. And he, exactly what his relationship with God was was unclear. It would seem to me, I don't think it's wrong to assume that at one point he was probably in a good place with God. Because he was able to talk to God and God would talk to him. But this evil king sent for him and he said, look, I'm really worried about these people, you know. I'm worried. So I know you're a man of God. I want you to curse them. I want you to curse them so there won't be a problem. And there's this backwards and forwards that takes place where, and I'm very much paraphrasing for the sake of time, where Balaam goes to God and God says, it's not a good idea. And he goes back to Balak and said, sorry, can't do it. And there's this, I'll offer you more money. And this toing and froing takes place where it seems, in my perception at least, it seems like he is trying to find a way to make it work so he can receive the golden handshake that is being offered him. He's trying to find a way that he can, can do what this wicked king wants him to do so he can take home all that money and all those riches. But he keeps trying to do it in Numbers chapter 23 and in this process where he's kind of stuck, he says in verse 19, God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. Has he said and shall he not do it? Has he spoken? Shall he not make it good? He said, God's not going to change his mind. He said, behold, I have received commandment to bless and he has blessed and I cannot reverse it. Balaam's basically saying, I'm trying, bro. <laughs> but God really likes these people. <laughs> I'm really trying to find a way where I can curse them, but they seem to be special to God. And the Lord blesses you, no one can reverse that. We are His children. Amen. But you see, the second epistle of Peter tells us that Balaam loved the wages of unrighteousness the profits they could have that were material. He goes to the Lord several times trying to find a loophole, trying to find a way that he can manipulate the situation and, and, and get his payday. And that started in Numbers chapter 22, but when you get to Numbers chapter 31, Balaam is killed by the Israelites. And there, there's patches in between chapters 24 and 31 that we don't have all the details, but... When we put the whole council of Scripture together, it seems that because Balaam was unable to curse Israel, God did not give him that liberty. He instructed the Moabites to corrupt them with idolatry and fornication, immorality. And that affected them because of the consequences of their sins. Because in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 14 where the Lord instructs the Apostle John to write to, I think it's the church at Pergamos. He said, But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. He could not get the liberty from God to curse them, but his heart had become attached to the riches. His desire had been, oh, it, you know, I know I've got to listen to God, but man, that's a lot of money. He was, you know, he was already spending that money before he even got it. You know, I'm not going to point at anybody, but it's tax return time, right? How many of us are spending our tax return before it comes? As soon as you press that button, you get that estimated total. Hey, what am I going to do with that? Balaam was already spending his money. 
in his head and his mind before he got it. And such became his lust for the rewards of men that he would deliberately corrupt the people of God to get them. There's a very well-known false prophet on TV and the internet for many years now who said, I'm not waiting for my mansion of gold up there. I want my gold down here. And uh, Balaam was out of the, cut from the same cloth. The error of Balaam was that he listened to the enemies of God's people long enough that he began to become willing to join forces with them for his own profit. Amen. Then we get to Korah. Numbers chapter 16. Numbers 16 and 1 says, Now Korah, the son of Izhar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Peleth, the sons of Reuben, took men. They rose up before Moses, were certain of the children of Israel, 250 princes of the assembly, famous in the congregation, men of renown. They gathered themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said unto them, You take too much upon you. In other words, you think you're too good. Seeing all the congregation are holy. Everybody's God's children. Every one of them. And the Lord is among them. Wherefore do you lift yourselves up above the congregation of the Lord? This story has always impacted me. Because I've seen it played out too many times in my own lifetime. I've seen young people not willing to listen to elders and get ahead of themselves. And the very first verse talks about these young rulers, these young princes, and it says that they took men. It could have stopped there, you know. Those men that they were talking to, the ones they took, it could have stopped there. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. A stranger will they not follow if these men hadn't listened to Korah, this thing might not have got much oxygen and it might have crashed and burned before it got off the ground. But Korah was jealous of the position of Aaron and Moses and Aaron's sons in the priesthood, became full of pride and filled with his own importance and his judgment became twisted. And Moses was, was overcome with his concern for the outcome because God was going to just wipe them out. You read the story, Moses is like, Lord, don't destroy them. Well, what about your people? And Moses tries to intervene and stands in the gap and appeals to the people. Separate yourselves. Don't, don't be a part of this situation. Don't get caught up with this rebellious attitude. God is not happy. God is not pleased. And he appeals to Korah and his associates and says, you're already in position. God has blessed you. He's using you. You're anointed. They're in the priesthood. He said, isn't it enough? But they become so full of their own ambition and their own pride that when they separated themselves, when the congregation, when there were people that made decisions about where they were going to stand, the Bible says that fire came forth from the Lord and consumed the 250 priests that rebelled with the princes, that rebelled with them. The earth opened up, swallowed Korah and those that were with him. God judged them. Moses tried to stand in the gap because he loved the people of Israel. When you read the rest of that chapter in Numbers 16, you see the next day the people murmured against Moses again and said, oh, you've killed the Lord's people. You see, had a, when, when, when rebellion, when people rise up and it stirs up a, a, a spiritual approach and attitude that has a ripple effect, 
and God judged again the next day and another nearly 15,000 people were killed because of the rebellion of these young men. Amen. The gain saying of Korah could be described as I don't think my elders have any more spiritual authority than I do, so I have no problem speaking against them. In fact, I think I should be in charge. I think it's about time that I was running the show around here. Amen. And we, you know, we probably all felt like that from time to time. I'm going to embarrass my son tonight because that's what dads get to do. But years ago, we were on our way to General Conference and we were at the airport down here. And uh, my mind was already in executive board meetings. And so we've got the four of us in our suitcases and bag tags and all that nonsense. And I've got our boarding passes. And for some reason in my brain, I forgot the fact that you have to drop your suitcases off at the bag drop. You don't take them with you onto the plane. So I've got this suitcase and I just begin to head off to security. And my wife and my kids are just standing there looking at me, wondering what's going on. And my son said, I think we need to change the leadership. <laughs> I think he might have been about 14 at the time. <laughs> but there's probably all times we felt like we needed a change of leadership, amen? But we have to recognize that God is in control. God is in control, amen? These... These passages aren't given to us in the Word of God so that leaders can, you know, make sure nobody ever says anything. That's not right because Moses' heart was for the people. He wasn't a power freak. He wasn't a control freak. He was begging them, don't do this. But he stood between them and God and said, God, be merciful. It's not what it's about. It's about recognizing that when God puts things in place, it's up to him to move them. What are some of the things that these three people, Cain, Balaam, and Korah, have in common? All three of them became consumed with themselves, just like the devil. They were all willing to sacrifice others to fulfill their own lusts and their own ambitions. All three of them were in blessed positions or situations. They weren't in bad, they weren't doing it tough. Didn't have bad lives or unfortunate circumstances. Cain was the firstborn son. Balaam had some kind of connection with God. Korah was a prince, famous in the congregation, he and his friends. They weren't, you know, nobodies. And all of them had the opportunity to consider themselves and correct their error. All of them had that chance and yet they failed to do so. God said to Cain, what are you so angry for? You do the right thing, you'll be accepted. It's simple. But his heart was already becoming full of bitterness and anger over his rejection and his brother's acceptance. He would not listen to the mercy of God. God was basically saying, if you just get it right, we can fix this, Cain. Genesis would have been a very different book. Who knows what might have happened after that. Balaam, the reality with Balaam is he should have stopped before he started. Even his donkey saw that. You know the story, he's riding his donkey, going to go do this silly thing that he's involved in. They come to a tight place. The donkey sees the angel. Balaam doesn't see the angel. The donkey starts slamming Balaam's legs against the wall, which hurt quite a bit. Balaam gets upset and gets off the donkey and starts beating the donkey. And then, I mean, how good is God? God got his donkey to speak to him. He wouldn't listen to God, so God sends him a talking mule. He says, what are you doing? What have I ever done wrong? God was trying to reach Balaam. 
And not many people I know can speak to animals. Dr. Doolittle's not real. I hate to burst somebody's bubble. But even then, Balaam wouldn't listen. He wouldn't listen. Korah, Moses begged him. He said, hear me, I pray you sons of Levi. Don't do this. And what a price they paid. You know, uh, some of you have heard me share this before, but Numbers chapter 16 and verse 1 has one of my favorite Bible characters. It says, Now Korah, the son of Izhar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, Dathan and Abraham, sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Peleg. On. What a weird name. On. Obviously it wasn't English, but still weird. You know, he was there in the original coup. He was one of the original ringleaders. But you know, when they come back the next day, when Moses says, come back tomorrow, we're going to sort this out, he's not mentioned again. Korah, Dathan and Abraham are all mentioned again. But On is never mentioned again. Seems to me that during the night, maybe somebody counseled him. Maybe he stopped and thought about what they were doing. Whatever, whatever it is, I don't think it's a, a stretch to suggest that he changed his mind about being involved in the rebellion. Because he's not mentioned again. Imagine how that young man felt when he saw the earth open up and swallow up Korah and the other 250 scorched by the fire from God. You want to talk? I, I promise you, he fell on his face and he began to worship. That young man, for me, is an example of you can recognize when you're going down a bad pathway and turn it around. You can see, I'm headed down a path of destruction. This is the wrong way. He's never mentioned again. That's the only time that I can find his name in all of the Word of God. And yet the fact that he is not mentioned again in that chapter is a testimony to the fact that he made a better choice. Amen. All of them, Cain, Balaam, and Korah, when they would not listen, were judged by God. Amen. Understand this. It may not seem in the New Testament church that there are as harsh consequences today as there were in the Old Testament, but God has not changed. Romans chapter 11 the Lord draws a parallel or uses a, a picture of, a, of an olive tree that was unfruitful. He's talking about Israel. He talks about how they were cut off and the wild olive was grafted in. They were cut into that tree. He's talking about the Gentiles that were previously outside. He's talking about that situation. And, and in 11, Romans 11.22 it says, Behold, therefore, the goodness and the severity of God. On them that fell, severity. But towards thee, goodness if thou continue in his goodness, otherwise thou also shalt be cut off. That's in the New Testament. You know the grace and the mercy part of the Bible? That's in the New Testament. Amen. Jude's epistle is strong. It's powerful. It comes full of warnings. But in the end, there's also an encouragement. In, in, I'm closing with this tonight in verse 20 and 21. After all of these warnings about all the things that can happen, he says, But ye... Beloved, but ye, beloved, building up yourselves on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost, walking in the Spirit, letting the Spirit of God flow through us, letting it guide us, correct us, instruct us, challenge us as God will if we will listen. He said, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ 
unto eternal life. Stand with me if you would tonight. Amen. These warnings are there for a reason. I'm not preaching it because I'm worried about there being any Cain's or Balaam's or Chorus here, so don't be looking over your shoulder. But the warnings are there in the Word of God for a reason. We are to keep ourselves in the love of God, to build up our faith. The Lord spoke to us through the gifts about exercising our faith, how God has given us a measure of faith, and we need to exercise that. We need to pray in the Spirit. We need to let God be moving in us and through us. We're looking for His mercy. Lift your hands and worship Him if you would tonight. Thank you, Jesus. Oh, thank you, Jesus. 